Would you join me in prayer? Mighty God, thank you for your word. Thank you for incredible stories that are true. Thank you for these characters, these real people that we get to talk about this morning, Abigail and David and Nabal. And we ask, God, that you would allow us to step into your story through the story of these three and through the courage, especially, that Abigail brings into play. May the words of my mouth and the things that we consider in our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, many of you know we were gone last week, my family and I. We went back to Colorado where we lived for a couple of years, and it was great. We lived in western Colorado, so the opposite side of the state from where Denver is, a town called Grand Junction. And I went running with a friend of mine, and this was on my bucket list when we went back to visit. I wanted to go out and run on the trails and be out in this beautiful wilderness. Uh, I should have snapped a photo for y'all, but I didn't. If you'd like to Google something fun later, Google Horse Thief Canyon. Horse Thief Canyon. There is such a thing. I didn't see any horses actually being stolen while I was at Horse Thief Canyon, but it's just premier mountain biking, running, hiking trails just outside of town. So I went running with my friend Casey at Horse Thief Canyon. Now, the trick about any kind of physical activity in a place like Colorado is elevation. Now, elevation is this funny word that those of us that live at sea level never pay attention to because it doesn't matter. But when you live in Colorado, elevation is really, really critical. Where we lived, this place, Grand Junction, Horse Thief Canyon, this place where I went running, the elevation, 4,600 feet. So if you're doing the math, 5,280 feet is a mile high. So we're basically sniffing a mile high. And I start out on this run with my friend, and Casey and I go way back, and we have a great relationship. Um, And he uh, has since moved away as well. So we're both looking at this task of running at 4,600 feet, which is already pretty tough. And we start out on this trail, and I look up, and I go, you know, that's not a flat trail. (laughs) Like, we're starting with a climb, and I think at the beginning it was maybe like a five-degree climb, and then it got slowly up to maybe seven or eight degrees. I mean, we were kind of leaning into the hill at one point. So this was on my bucket list. Like, I really wanted to do this while I was in Colorado. Like, this is one of my joys. It was a beautiful day. And then about three or four minutes into it, like, get me the oxygen tank. Like, this is not good. I'm a flatlander now. Sea level is my home. I really thought about bailing out. And we've all been there, right? We've all stepped into something that was challenging. We kind of knew it would be a challenge. And we just wanted to say, like, that, that's enough. Like, I don't need to do this. And I'm really glad that I didn't bail on this run. I'm glad that I didn't because it was on my bucket list. Sure, it was the thing I wanted to do. It was a beautiful day. The views and the the vistas from where we ran was just incredible. And I got to have a great conversation with my friend. We got to catch up. We got to share life together. We got to talk about our marriages and our families. And it was a rich and deep conversation in between gasping and panting and trying to make it up this climb. So we would run for five minutes, walk for a minute, run for five, walk for five, walk for one. And eventually we made it up there. And the point of this whole story is this, is we can talk ourselves out of the challenges that are in front of us. Every one of us has the ability to talk ourselves out of something in front of us that feels too big for us. And if you're like me and you struggle with courage, this tends to be kind of normative. You see a project coming down the pike, a new responsibility at work, your kids are facing something that just feels far beyond you. And what we run the risk of is we run the risk of missing out on the life that God has for us in these moments of courage by just saying, you know what? I don't have any business running at 4,600 feet. Like, this is just silly. Why would I do this? 
God calls us to challenges in way tougher situations than just going on a trail run. When we face up to those challenges, we can be guaranteed that there's going to be transformation for us and potentially for our community, and it deepens our faith in the gospel. And that, I think, is one of the main points of today's story. This is a story about someone who has faith and sees that faith deepened and expanded in a powerful way. And the key to this story is that the situation that Abigail faces is not of her own making. How many times do the challenges you and I face feel like something that we had no control over? I didn't have any control over this project landing on my desk. I didn't have any control over this conflict in my family. This isn't my mess. I'm not responsible for this. Why do I have to clean this up? And the calling I think we see in the text today is that the gospel calls us to be a part of God's desire to make peace throughout the world, even and maybe even especially when it's not our fault. And in a way, that's leadership. So today we're continuing our sermon series entitled Called by God. We're talking about women of the Bible. Today's teaching pretty much resides in 1 Samuel 25, which uh, Denise read a bit of it for us. So if you want to turn there in your Bible, you want to open up your app and bring that up, that's where we're going to be most of the time. And this is sort of a middle chapter in the life of King David. And if you uh, are looking for something to read devotionally throughout the week ahead, I would just encourage you, read through 1 Samuel 25. It, it just, it's a great story. It's broken out where you can read it chunk by chunk each day. And the overview of it I want to give us at the top so we don't get lost in the weeds. It's really simple. Two guys get mad at each other. They hurt each other's pride. Both guy goes off to get his crew. They're ready to rumble. And then a courageous woman steps in and makes things right. And every guy in the room should kind of be nodding, going like, yeah, that's kind of how it works. That's pretty much what happens. Our thesis for today goes like this. The gospel arms us with courage and provides wisdom for the battles that we'll face. Arms us with courage and provides wisdom for the battles that we're going to face. So if you want to follow along in your bulletin, there's an outline. Uh, I did shift things up a little bit later in the week, so you're just going to kind of have to follow along, but I'll walk us through it as best I can. This first section is about pride and saber rattling. This is where we set the context. How did we get here? What's going on? Verses 1 through 13 is kind of what I'll summarize from 1 Samuel 25. So here's the gist. David has been chosen to be king over Israel. And you remember this from earlier in 1 Samuel, there's a group of brothers and David is chosen from among the brothers, not because he's the strongest or the smartest, but because he's the one who God wants to be in that role. At this time, the Israelites were primarily involved in the commerce of shepherding, like their jobs, most of them revolved around shepherding. And because this was the nation's kind of primary economic driver, they encountered lots of other people in that industry. So think about the people that you know in your industry or you know in your field who do the same work you do, just that natural connecting point that you have with them. Think about the connection between the Seattle area and the Silicon Valley in terms of tech or wherever Amazon decides to land HQ2. We're going to have another connection there, right? So there's this guy. His name's Nabal, and he is working with David and his men. And one of the resources I encountered this week kind of summarized it this way. David and his followers, the men from Israel, protected Nabal's workers and animals from predators. So they're involved in the same trade. And if you can kind of picture it, Nabal and his workers have a whole bunch of livestock, cattle, sheep. And David and his crew are kind of surrounding those guys and those resources to protect them. The Israelites are kind of like a security detail. So what's Nabal like? What's this guy like that they're working with? He's not a great guy. I'm not sure I would want him to date my daughters. 
As the chapter opens in 1 Samuel 25, we're introduced to Nabal, and as it turns out, his name reflects his character. His name in the Hebrew means fool or foolish. I don't think this was a term of endearment. I think this is one of those nicknames that was given to him that he probably didn't want, but he kind of got stuck with it. Have you ever had a nickname like that? So let me read from verses 2 and 3 of 1 Samuel 25 to kind of illustrate for us how we first encounter Nabal. There was a man in Maon whose property was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. There's the resources that David is protecting. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel, and the name of the man was Nabal, fool, and the name of his wife was Abigail. The woman was clever and beautiful, but the man was surly and mean. He was a Calebite. So the taste we get of this character from the get-go is rather bitter. He proves that his character isn't just a name being given to him. It's something that he lives into. He shows us the reality of his character. If you read down the page a little bit in verse 10, David sees that Nabal has a lot of resources. His men are hungry. He asks, basically, can my men join your men for lunch? And David, when he asks for Nabal's help, Nabal just says, no way. No, that's not going to happen. David, you're coming to me and you need some help? Oh, okay. Your men are hungry? Uh Uh-huh, yeah. You see I have a lot of resources. That's great. I'll tell you where you can put that request. I mean, he's just mean to David. He's surly and rude. And thank goodness none of us act that way in our business, right? We never have to deal with anybody that way. So obviously Nabal is being set up as the bad guy. And if this was a two-character story, you'd already have the bad guy and good guy established. It's not a two-character story. It's a three-character story. But we got to look at David for just a moment. And really, it's very brief because the author sort of expects the audience to know David at this point. Throughout 1 Samuel 25, and really the whole book of 1 Samuel, David's character is being rolled out for the audience. We know from earlier chapters of 1 Samuel, David was humble and modest. When there was that selection of who was going to be king, he was not the guy standing up there going, pick me, pick me, aren't I great? He was the one modestly doing the work that he had been called to do. He was chosen not for his strength or his voice or his swagger, but because God had called him. So he's humble. We know he was brave because he faced down Goliath. We know he was resourceful. He used the tools he knew how to use. And we know this just from a chapter before that David is merciful. In 1 Samuel 25, David has the opportunity to kill Saul, the king of Israel who was after his head, who wanted to strike him down, and David chose not to. He chose to give mercy to Saul, and that will come back into play a little bit later on. Now, hear me when I say this. David's not perfect. David might be a virtuous character. He's certainly set up in a literary sense to contrast Nabal, but he ain't perfect. David is far from perfect. And this is good news because every hero we may have from the scriptures is undeniably human and broken and flawed, which is good news for any of us who would say, I'm broken and I'm flawed. If God can use people like David, he can use you and he can use me. But there's a thread connecting David and Nabal that's really interesting that we need to talk about before we move along any further. David and Nabal share something, a connection that I think many of us can relate to. Even though David's kind of set up to be the hero, Nabal's set up to be the bad guy, as is often the case, there's a point of connection that is critical to understanding both of them. And the thing that connects David and Nabal is so simple, and we all struggle with it, and it's this. It's pride. Nabal is a prideful man. He got success. He got all kinds of stuff. He has the ancient Near East equivalent of a Bentley in the driveway. He has got it all. 
and he's prideful and he's rude. And if you follow David's story past today's text, he's not that much different. When he comes into power, when he starts to sort of taste what he can do within the kingship of Israel, it goes south for him pretty quickly. He kind of starts to get drunk on his own power. He drinks the Kool-Aid and therefore pride pride connects and unites Nabal and David. This is the thing they're both struggling with. And it provides the perfect combustion point for there to be a serious moment of conflict between the two of them. So this is where we need to stop and ask ourselves some questions. Are you in conflict with someone right now? Check your pulse. If you have a pulse, you are. You just may not know it. Maybe there's a coworker that you haven't gotten along with lately. You had a good relationship, but it's gone south. Maybe there's a contractor that you have to work with on a project, and you're going, ugh, when can this be done? Maybe you and your neighbor are in a, another spat again. You know, it's springtime. You've got to make sure you mow on your side the property line. Don't you take your lawnmower over to my side. Anytime we face conflict, it is an opportunity to learn about ourselves. Anytime you and I face conflict, it is an opportunity to learn about ourselves. Because, like David and Nabal, there is something in us that is being revealed by the person we're in conflict with. Whenever we experience conflict, it's almost like a mirror is being held up to our own character. And we have the opportunity to say, oh, I see part of me in this person that I don't like a lot right now. How much of you resides in the person that you're in conflict with? How much of you is in the person that you are experiencing conflict with? What's the sin that you see in your own heart reflected back at you in the life of someone that you don't like right now? At one of my former churches, uh, I was kind of early in my time there, and a woman came up to me after one of my sermons and <laughs> essentially interrogated me theologically, like wanted to know if I was a five-point Calvinist and all these kind of other things. These are not the usual comments people give to me after a service, which I'm grateful for. And so I reacted pretty negatively to that, probably one of my worst sort of public moments where I had a little bit of a, a spat with this person. And what I realized as I reflected on it later is the things that bugged me about this person. Pride, arrogance, intellectual superiority, theological Phariseeism. I got all that in me too. That's all in me. And she reflected that right back to me. So what is that for you, friends? When you're in conflict, I know it's hard to think about this, but is that person revealing something to you about yourself, especially something that's broken that you struggle with, and you would not prefer to learn about it this way, but this is how you're learning about it. Every time we get into conflict, it's an opportunity to learn about ourselves. So the next time you're in conflict, seriously, I've done this. It's possible to do it. Get out a piece of paper and write down, who does this person remind me of? Is it myself? Is it my mom or my dad? Who does this person remind me of? Then the follow-up question to that is, when does this person's behavior most trigger me, most get me going, most set me off, and why is that? Why is it this person always seems to ambush me at the water cooler? Why is it that their emails are just the worst? What is it about that that makes me so angry? And what does that say about my own sin, my own struggles? Keep track of that. Keep track of that and pray over that. Ask God to bring about your own development and your own strengthening through those places of brokenness. 
and continue to pray about it and invite your small group to pray about it with you if you want to be vulnerable with them. Get a mentor, get an accountability partner to speak into that. Be bold with your spouse. These are opportunities for us to grow in the character of the gospel. And if there's anything I want for us, it's for us to keep growing in the kind of character that God wants for us. So that's the context. Those are some points of reflection about conflict. Conflict's always an opportunity to learn about ourselves. Now let's move on to the second point. In your outline, I kind of combined point two and point three. So if you just want to slide those two together, you can do that. Now we got to talk about the real hero, the heroine of the story, Abigail. We're introduced to Abigail in verse three. She's a clever and beautiful woman. Abigail learns about this impending clash between David and Nabal. A servant from her household comes running to her to tell her what's up. Now, isn't that interesting? When we go running to someone in conflict, when we are in the midst of a crisis and we turn to someone to help us solve that crisis, we typically respect that person a lot, right? Like unless we're dropping down into sort of gossip and we're just sort of spreading things around the office, typically the person we go to, the people we turn to in the midst of conflict are the people that we trust and respect. In this moment, and I'm talking mostly about verses 14 through 17, the servant who comes running to Abigail to tell her what's going on respects Abigail and brings something to Abigail that he thinks Abigail can do something about. Listen to this. This is verse 17. We're going to come back to this later because this is just such an amazing statement. This is the servant talking to Abigail. He's just told her what's up. There's about to be a fight. The jets and the sharks, they're out in the street. And he says this, Now therefore, know this and consider what you should do. For evil has been decided against our master and against all his house. He is so ill-natured that no one can speak to him. Now, therefore, know this and consider what you should do. Friends, if you are thinking about that conflict that I mentioned a moment ago, if you're in the midst of chaos in your household or in your work, if you've got uncertainty about what's ahead, great. Go and consider what God wants you to do. Go get that thing done that's in front of you. Go lead. You don't know what to do. You don't know what to ask. Ask God. He will show you the way forward. He shows Abigail the way forward in a powerful way. If you check our church's Facebook page later in the week, we'll have a resource posted up there from Fuller Seminary. It's a devotional called She Is, Biblical Reflections on Vocation. It's a PDF. You can download it. It's free. We're not selling anything here. It comes from Fuller Seminary's Center for Leadership, the Max Dupree Center for Leadership. And it's just these really fascinating profiles of women from the Bible, and it's beautifully illustrated. It's really well done. And so I was reading through the section about Abigail this week, and I want to share a quote from that with you. Abigail acts quickly, right? This crisis comes to her. She knows she needs to respond. She acts quickly, thoughtfully, and deftly. She moves with an urgency, like she's been prepared for this situation all her life. Without running her plans by her hot-headed husband, she loads up some donkeys with some gifts. She mounts a donkey of her own, and she rushes to David's oncoming battalion to make amends, to make peace. Could you and I do that if there was an angry mob running to our front door? Could we rush out there to meet them? I think I'd probably lock the door. I don't think I would run out there, but Abigail runs out there. She offers David bread, wine, sheep, grain, raisins, Seahawks tickets, figs. She denounces her husband as a fool who isn't worth the violence. He not worth it. She says God would want to keep David's hand from spilling any blood today. 
That's the part that Denise read for us. God does not want you to do this. Do not do this. Facing down David and his men with their swords strapped to their sides, Abigail doesn't bat an eye. That's amazing. That is a good time. Because prideful leaders are not a new thing. There have been prideful, arrogant leaders in every year. I'm not talking about any political person, anything like that. I am talking about pride. And Abigail faces two prideful men in this moment. And she had the courage to do it. Or maybe she had it genetically. Courage is not inborn, friends. It is a practiced art. It is a thoughtful decision. There is not a chance that Abigail just had this courage in her. She learned it. She had to earn the respect of her household, which she clearly had. Her leadership obviously stands in sharp contrast to her foolish and boorish husband. She's been forged in the fires of conflict for a long time now. So when this conflict lands literally on her doorstep, she's ready. She's ready to roll up to it. And that's a word of encouragement for us because you are more ready to face the conflict in front of you than you think you are. You are a lot more ready. You are a lot more prepared to face the challenges that God has put in front of you. Because it ain't the first time. And it's not going to be the last time. And Abigail shows this to us. I'll go back to that Fuller document that I mentioned. In the face of conflict, Abigail rushes in with a confidence that non-confrontational people would have nightmares about. And this applies to our modern day lives as well. Whether it's a condescending word at the office or a tyrannical law of government. The world is rife with currents of violence like those demonstrated by David and Nabal. And we see this manifest in our culture, in our nation, even in our homes, our workplaces, our churches. With words and actions and systems, people harm each other all the time. And we are all affected whether or not we are responsible. Do you hear this, guys? Whether or not we are responsible, we are affected by these violent things. Abigail's story so clearly shouts, if you can do something to make peace, go do it. If you can make peace, go do it. Even if you can do a little thing, even if you can move the ball an inch, go do it. It's a challenging idea, and Abigail's story totally holds this up for us to examine for our own lives. But as I studied this this week, I started to think more about like how would I want to step into something like that, and I would need more. I would need more of a motive to try to understand why am I supposed to bring peace to the situation? This isn't my problem. Why should I deal with this? What gives us strength in the moment to persevere toward peace? Peace isn't just a one-time thing. We got to keep working at it and toiling at it. And how do we withstand these moments of crises that always seem to come up? That's the gospel. That's the strength that the gospel gives to you and to me. It's trusting when Jesus says things like, peace I give to you. My peace I live with you. I leave with you. It's one of my favorite passages in all of scripture because it means to me that the peace that's been extended to me through Jesus Christ isn't just for me. It can't just stop with me. It has to flow out into the lives of my neighbors and my friends and coworkers and people that I'm in conflict with. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not be troubled and do not be afraid. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, then the peace that you carry within you into any conflict, into any tough situation at home or with kids or with your spouse, it all belongs to and is shaped by Jesus. And that is such good news. Because if it belongs to him, he's going to use it. 
And he's going to use you and me to achieve that. So my confidence, right, because courage is a form of confidence. If my confidence is in me and my ability to finesse my language or come up with the perfect word to diffuse this situation, or if I only had a few minutes to talk to this person by myself, we would totally get it straightened out. That's a recipe for utter failure. But if my confidence, if our confidence is God is working through me, God is working through me. If it's just as simple as that, then our foundation isn't us. Our foundation is Jesus. Rather than walking into the next conflict situation that you're facing going, okay, I got to tread really lightly. This is a big problem. I don't know if I'm up for it. Instead, let me propose, we walk into those situations of conflict going, wow, Jesus has done everything for me, everything. He accomplished it all. And so I can enter even into this moment with joy. How about you show up to that next conversation, that hard, that conflict, that thing that you're working on that you can't seem to get traction with. How about you walk into that with joy? What a surprise that would be to your coworkers. What a wonderful and winsome surprise that would be to come in with the joy and the confidence that comes of knowing that Jesus has done that work for you and for us. That's where we get to our last point, where we talk about how the gospel is our peace. So this is not the end end, but we're getting there. And it's two parts. The gospel brings peace, and the gospel brings our transformation. So Abigail's taken on responsibility for the conflict in front of her. She meets David with all these peace offerings, and then she says these amazing words to us. Denise read them for us, but I'm going to read them again. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and alighted from the donkey and fell before David on her face, bowing to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, Upon me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Upon me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. This is a fascinating moment where Abigail animates the gospel for us in a powerful way. She's doing it by both being respectful of her culture and being disruptive of her culture, which is what makes the gospel so beautiful. It always disrupts and it always, always respects the culture that it's dropped into. So think about it this way. She's disrupting the culture because she lived in a patriarchal society where a woman would not have had the privilege or the responsibility of speaking on behalf of the household. That just wouldn't have happened. That's what she's doing. She is speaking on behalf of her household because her husband is too much of a jerk to do it. She disrupts those cultural norms, and then, then, she accommodates the cultural norms by speaking directly to David, the leader of the other household, right? She's talking to the guy in charge. It's like when you're on customer service and you say, let me talk to your manager. She's talking to the manager, and she frames the conflict in terms of households. This is very foreign to us because we live in such an individualistic society. But in her day, in her culture, you wrong someone in one family, you wrong the whole family. This is Sicilian mafia stuff. You hurt this family, you hurt this family, it's going to go bad for you. But she recognizes that and she plays to that. It's a communally driven society. And so she does do what the culture would have said at the time. This insult that you laid on this other family, you are responsible. You, y'all, your whole household are responsible for that. And as the dialogue goes on, Abigail is honest about Nabal's guilt. Yep, he did it. He messed up. He's a fool. 
She doesn't gloss over it. She doesn't say, you know, he had a bad day at the office and the Mariners are on a losing streak and this and that and that. No, he, he's an idiot. He did it. She takes the sin of the moment seriously. And that's demanded of us in any kind of conflict. We have to own our part. And then she takes on the responsibility for making peace. Now, stop me if this sounds familiar to you. She takes sin seriously. She assumes the responsibility for making peace, cleaning up a mess that really wasn't hers to begin with. She's humble. She's gracious. She's willing to sacrifice everything for others. Who does that sound like? That's Jesus. That's right. Say it from the back. Bring it. This is exactly what Jesus did with his life, and especially in his death on the cross. He went to the cross like Abigail took on the guilt in this moment for broken people to bring peace. And if you're sitting here today, you're a broken person that needs that peace. And Jesus has done it The woman that Jesus met at the well in John 4, he knew her story. You've had so many husbands. This man you're with now isn't your husband. He doesn't gloss over sin. He never glosses over sin. He just says this, go and sin no more. And he fought for that woman's forgiveness on the cross. And he took her sins on. And he took on my sins. And he took on your sins. And this is where these wonderful truths, kind of Christianity 101, comes home for you and for me every single day. We have to remind ourselves of the cross. We have to remind ourselves of the power that Jesus brought to take on sin, to set people free, to find forgiveness for us that we ain't never going to find for ourselves. Paul understands it when he says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Abigail models this, you guys. She brings peace to her whole household through this expression of the gospel centuries before Jesus came on the scene. And she extends the gift of grace, not just to herself, to others. So the gospel brings peace in that situation, in that moment. It can bring peace to your situation at work, at school, wherever you are finding yourself in conflict. And then the gospel doesn't just stop there. The gospel brings transformation. And this is how we'll wrap up today. Abigail warns David against following his gut instinct to pull out his sword and go be violent Go take the life of Nabal. She tells him in verses 30 and 31, essentially, don't do it. Do not kill Nabal. You will live with that guilt for the rest of your life. Don't do it. He listens to her. He puts away his sword. He recognizes her grace and her leadership. Every one of our conflicts should end this way. And he chooses a different path. And that's where the transformation piece comes into play. Because don't miss this. Mercy begets mercy. Mercy begets mercy. Mercy. In the very next chapter of 1 Samuel, David chooses yet again to be merciful to Saul. He chooses not to kill Saul again. Don't you think that the interaction he had with Abigail informed that? That that was in his mind as he had the opportunity yet again to try to take his enemy out. And he says, you know, no, I don't want this blood on my hands. I don't need to do this. David's story, at least here in this chapter, ends with transformation and a deeper understanding of God's love for him. Nabal, on the other hand, his story does not end well. He ends drunk and disorderly. When the news reaches him about Abigail brokering peace, essentially being the grown-up in the room, the text tells us in verse 37, Nabal's heart died within him and he became like a stone. And the Hebrew understanding of heart, that would have meant like his soul collapsed, like a building falling apart. 
like it imploded inside of him. His heart collapsed, and soon after that, he's dead. David is receptive. He gets this glimpse of Jesus' mercy and sacrifice. It changes his heart. It shapes his character. Nabal, on the other hand, gets to die twice because he don't listen. And like every prideful leader since his day and before his day, he can't hear nothing. Let us not be a people that are like Nabal, who can't hear nothing. Let us be people who hear the gospel and embrace the rhythms of the gospel in our daily lives. Not just once, not just when we're feeling like it, not just when it's Easter, daily. For me, this hits home when I'm tempted to try to draw my identity from something especially performance-related. So we were on vacation, we're driving back to the airport, time to turn in the rental car, time to you know, put everything away. And the rental car is due back at the airport at 3. It's 2.54 and we still have to get gas. And so I'm like, and this is just me, performance, responsibility, firstborn child. I've talked to my counselor about it. Driving to the airport becomes incredibly stressful when I'm going, we got to get there by 3. We got to do it. We got to do it. They need this minivan. And in the moment, I'm talking with Jill and I'm reminded of the study we just did of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. And I just start saying that to myself as I'm driving the minivan, trying to get the gas, trying to make it back to the rental car place. And this gospel truth that no matter what time I turn in the stupid car, no matter what penalty monetarily is levied against me, my worth and my value and who I am in Christ is never going to be touched by that. That's just a thing. Like, who cares? It's a minivan. We get the car turned in at 301. The people at the car place don't even bat an eye. And I am so grateful that in that moment, a little bit of the gospel moved from here to here for me. Just a little bit. And my heart was that much more receptive to this idea that no matter how I perform, I can be beloved. I am beloved. Now, that may seem like a silly example, but it was a real moment for me where the gospel moved into a deeper place in my heart. And I just want to encourage you with that in the week ahead. Look for those opportunities. Try to find them. Go back with me to verse 17. This will be the last thing we say. Remember, this is the exchange between Abigail and the servant. The servant says this, Now, therefore, know this and consider what you should do. Another way to translate that, think it over and see what you can do. Friends, here's your homework. Think it over. Are you giving yourself time to think about the gospel regularly? Are you giving yourself time to read good texts and to spend time in the scriptures and to be reminded of these beautiful gospel truths like this one that's always so encouraging to me? I am so broken that Jesus had to die for me. And I am so deeply loved that he was glad to die for me. Do you give yourself time to sit with that and think about that? Because I need that time to survive, to thrive. Receive that with joy. Take that into your workplace. Take that into your school. Take that into your family until it moves from your head to your heart. We are so broken that Jesus had to die for us. And we are so loved he was glad to die for us. That's the gospel. So think it over and then see what you can do. Taking stock of what you have, consider how the gospel can bring peace to the places where you live, where you work, where you play, where you study. How can the gospel impact the conflict you're in right now? 
How can we speak wisely through the lens of the gospel against the wicked things that just seem to be coming up again and again in our culture? And how can we advocate against decisions that harm people? How can we stand in between the Nabals or even the Davids of our day and stop the violence that's directed toward us? How can we be a part of that? You want to take a great first step today? Come see Josh and pray, to, pray with him. Have someone pray over you. Pray over the conflict that you're in the middle of. Pray over whatever situation has been arising as we've been talking. If you love prayer, join the prayer team. And I want to finish our time together by taking time to pray as a community. So would you join me now as we pray together? Gracious God, we're thankful for the gospel. We're thankful that it can change our lives, <laughs> whether we're turning in a car or working on a really hard project or trying to grow our business, or trying to teach our kids about your love for them. We're grateful that the gospel is neither sniveling nor swaggering. It is joyful gratitude and confidence in you. So this day, through these words, through your word, would you fill us with the power to go and be people of hope and of joy and of an identity that is shaped by you for your glory. We ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.